This morning we're going to go ahead and pick up uh, where we left off, le- le- last left off in our study through the book of Matthew. And so if you guys have a Bible with you this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, last time we got together, we looked through uh, the first 15 verses of chapter 11. Today we're going to finish uh, the second 15 verses, go from 16 through 30 and finish up chapter 11 in a message I've entitled, Come to Me. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, actually we'll read the whole entire text, verses 16 through 30. And so will you, I invite you to stand with me at this time as we read God's word, as we just want to honor God's word and, and stand in reverence of it as we read it. And as I read, I, I'd ask that you would just follow along. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. Uh, you may notice those are red letters. So this is Jesus speaking. And he says... But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Verse 20, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Verse 25. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that as we go through it this morning, Lord, that you would lead and guide us. Father, that as we uh, glean things from your scripture, that we might be able to make application to our own lives. And Lord, that we would leave this place having heard from you and having uh, known the direction in which you'd ask us to go. And so, Father, uh, I pray that none here would would come and and just listen and and check out, Lord, but that we would be attentive and expectant that you're going to speak to us and to our situations and our lives this morning. And so, Father, lead and guide, we do ask again. Lord, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for the rich blessings found within it. And we pray that we might just enjoy and glean from it this morning. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Recall that last week when we were going through the first 15 verses of chapter 11, we heard how Jesus spoke so favorably about the life and witness and the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a man that stood up to the religious elite and the political powers that be. He spoke boldly the message of repentance and the coming kingdom of heaven. And after speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus turned his attention to the current generation. The word generation used here is is used to reference the the physical or moral circumstances of a particular period. uh, Sort of like the spiritual state of a society, of a time uh, and group of people. Jesus was speaking about the mindset and the attitude, that spiritual state of the Jewish people as a whole, as an, uh, is, as, as, uh, well, it wasn't Israel at the time, but as a whole, the Jewish nation. And, and what did Jesus have to say about the moral, spiritual climate of the Jewish people in that day? He said that they were like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. Okay. These verses are, are written in verse okay, because they are, are a play on words. Okay. They are uh, actually in rhyme, but in, in the English language it doesn't rhyme. <laughs> But if you actually, uh, if it was spoken in Aramaic, which is a lot of people believe it may have been spoken in Aramaic, it was a common language of that day. Even if written in Greek, both of the, those words, um, the words uh, dance and lament, they're similar sounding. And so it's kind of a, a, like a little riddle, a little play on words that Jesus uses here to describe the moral, spiritual climate of the nation. So what did Jesus mean by using this play on words in this little rhyme? Jesus likened the generation to children. To children calling out to their companions, other children presumably, okay, who were for some reason, we're not told why, but for some reason they were either throwing a, a tantrum of some sort or, or simply, simply being apathetic. They would not respond to the many attempts of their companions to engage them. Okay? The children called out to them, inviting them to dance as they played the flute, but to no avail. The companions would not respond to their attempts. And so the children figured, well, they're companions, they're friends. They must not be in the mood for, for dance and celebration. And, and so perhaps they're, they're feeling a little bit somber or sad or down. And, and so they reached out to them by mourning to them. And as they mourned, they were looking for a response and still did not get any. The Bible says that they did not lament. In fact, your Bible may have a little footnote saying that the the word lament literally means to beat the breast. And so they were looking for some kind of response. They they played the flute. They didn't dance. Okay, well, maybe they're in a sad mood, so we'll mourn. and, and, And there's no beating of the chest. There's no engage, no response at all. They were hoping for some sort of response some sort of acknowledgement of the efforts to reach out to them and their companions would give them none. No dancing, no lamenting, nothing. Uh, 
And, and Jesus likens the generation to a group of children that will not respond or engage no matter what their companions did to reach out to them. We kind of have the wide spectrum is what, he, you know, really happy, happy, happy over here. You know, we tried that. We tried the other spectrum as well. We tried really sad and, and it got nothing. And so why would Jesus liken the generation to, to apathetic children? I think verse 18 and 19, it tells us why. It says in verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bimber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus said that John the Baptist was sent to the generation, and instead of listening to him and following his instruction, the people said he is demon-possessed. Although we noted last week that many had come out to see John the Baptist and to be baptized by him, still the majority of the people did not respond. As a whole, the generation, the Jewish people, did not respond. John the Baptist was an ascetic. An ascetic is someone who renounces material comforts and and he leads a life of strict self-discipline. John the Baptist did not eat the comfort foods of the day. He was very self-disciplined. You guys remember what he ate? Locusts, right? Locusts and wild honey. Very good. And and some believe that he may have even taken the vow of a Nazarite uh, based upon the proclamation of the angel that visited Zacharias, his father, before he was even born. And the angel declared uh, to him in verse 15 of chapter 1 of the book of Luke, he says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And part of the vow of a Nazarite would be to abstain from wine and strong drink, from anything from the vine. And so uh, some people believe that he may have even taken this vow of a Nazarite very self-disciplined. John the Baptist came eating little to nothing, living off of the land, living a simple life of obscurity and abstaining from drinking. And the people as a whole did not respond to him. In fact, not only did they not respond to him, they accused him of being demon-possessed. Jesus... The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they accused Him of sinful excess in eating and drinking and lumped Him together with the likes of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, we have like the, the playing the flute and not dancing. We got John the Baptist on one side and we have Jesus kind of on the other side. He didn't live that extreme life of self-discipline, or excuse me, self-denial that John the Baptist lived. He ate and he drank like others. And because of that, they falsely accused Jesus of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Generally speaking, a glutton is an excessive or self-indulgent eater. However, gluttony is more than overeating. It also can describe a life given over to excess. This idea that you're not satisfied. And so you have this... uh, uh, extreme appetite for things and there's no satisfaction in you that gluttony and so he's you know we have one guy who lived in self-denial with little to everything and then they said the other guy he lived in excess and accused him of these things that were false 
And so we see that these two opposites presented. John the Baptist lived a life of extreme self-denial, and they didn't respond to him. Jesus came, and they accused him of being uh, the opposite of John the Baptist, that he was living and consuming in excess, and they didn't listen to him either. It's as if Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who was sent to you. You wouldn't listen to them anyways. Not only would you not listen, but you'd also make up false accusations, lame excuses of why you would not listen. I'm not going to listen to John the Baptist. He's demon-possessed. Well, I'm not going to listen to Jesus. He's a glutton and a wine-bibber, and he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. The Jewish nation as a whole had an excuse for everything. The real problem was not John the Baptist. And, And the real problem was not Jesus Christ. The problem was their own sin and their own stubbornness, their own pride in not being willing to humble themselves and submit to the Lord. I see a lot of similarities between the generation of Jesus' day and today's generation. There are many today that have all sorts of excuses for why they will not listen to the word of the Lord and submit themselves to Him and come to Him in faith in Jesus Christ. I have come across many people you know, in doing street witnessing and reaching out, uh, before I moved to Japan, I used to work in a secular workplace and was Christian, and everyone knew me as, uh, he's the Christian. You know, this is Glenn, and he's a Christian. You know, kind of an introduction was my introduction usually. And uh, all sorts of excuses why they will not submit themselves to the Lord. I'm a good person. I don't need the Lord. You know, or, or I, I believe in science and evolution. I don't want to hear, you know, in that, you know, fairy tale stuff about God. The church, I don't want to go to church, it's filled with hypocrites. Okay? Or I'm not ready, I'm, not, I'm just not ready to surrender now. You know, I'm kind of enjoying life. I like living it up and doing my thing. And maybe when I get older, I'll, I'll do that Jesus thing. And, and so the world today, we have all sorts of excuses for why we will not come to faith and submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. And, and the interesting thing is, is that whatever the excuse is, at the root at the root of each and every one of them is sin. You can tear down every single excuse and you can bring it all the way back down. It's always, always, always connected to this. It's sin. It's stubbornness and pride that keeps them from releasing that sin. They don't want to give up what they have. That's what it comes down to. They don't want to give up. They don't want to give up the reins of their life. They want to be their own God. They want to be their own person. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to surrender my desires to someone else. And it's sin and selfishness. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 explains this truth when it says this. In the NIV, it says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And with that exposure of sin comes conviction and a realization of being wrong. And people today just don't want to hear anyone else that will tell them what you're doing is wrong. 
what you're doing is sinful. And because they don't want to hear that, they will make up lame excuses. Just like the people did here in Jesus' generation. I'm not going to listen to John the Baptist. He's demon-possessed. I'm not going to listen to Jesus. He's a wine-bibber and a glutton and a friend of... I'm not going to... Whatever it... I'm not going to surrender, Lord, because I like what I'm doing, and I don't want to give it up. And I don't want to surrender myself to you. And so the only alternative is to make up excuses. And, and, and I see it in today's generation. And, and you know what? I, I think in a smaller yet similar way... I think that this can even happen within the church. Even as Christians and followers of the Lord, we too can still make excuses for not listening or obeying the voice of the Lord. The the excuses most often always boil down to self-comfort. You see, Jesus asks His followers to die to themselves. To pick up their cross daily. Okay, to die to self. And you know what the truth is? We don't want to do that. We often don't want to do that. We don't want to give up on our own plans and our own desires, our own comforts, and be willing to put them on the shelf for something the Lord may ask of us. You know, the Lord may be asking us to talk to a co-worker about the Lord or to cut loose some of the weights that we're carrying around with us. You know, weights, they they aren't necessarily sin, but they're slowing us down. And they're keeping us from walking this walk with the Lord effectively and efficiently. These weights, God's saying, hey, you should cut loose some of those weights. We're kind of like, I don't want it, Lord. I kind of like it. Perhaps the Lord's asking you to help out in church, to plug into fellowship. I don't know what the Lord may be asking of you specifically, but I'm confident of this. He's asking you something. Because you see, He's not done with you. He has something for you. He has things for you to do today and in this life. He's not done with you, and so I'm confident He has things that He'd like for you to do. And so I want to ask you this question, okay? What is the Lord asking of you today? Have you taken the time lately to to seek the Lord and allow Him to show you the answer to that question? What is the Lord asking of you? What does He have before you? What has He placed there that says, you know what, I really want you to do this. I want you to step out in faith and do this or to do that. Whatever it may be, I want you to cut this thing out of your life. I want you to make these decisions and do this and do that. I, I believe the Lord speaking to all of us, if we have a relationship with Him, He's speaking to us. And so, what is the Lord asking of you? We need to listen to the Lord and stop making excuses. The generation before Jesus, they wouldn't listen to Him and they made up all sorts of excuses. Let's not be like them. Okay? Let's not be like them. Let's listen for the Lord's voice and obey when He asks of us something. Okay? And don't make excuses anymore. I, I think our excuses run the gamut within the church. It's, it's usually revolved around time. I just don't have the time to do this. You know, everyone has the same amount of time in the day. Everyone's given the same 24 hours. Okay? And I know a lot of people are busy, and you've got a lot of things going on. Okay? But if you've got things that are going on in your life 
that don't allow for opportunity for God to do something, you got too many things going on in your life. You need to make some adjustments. Okay? Or, or oftentimes it's, oh, I don't feel ready enough, or I'm not mature enough, I don't know the Bible enough. You know, and I know a lot of people that have been coming to church for a long time that use that same lame excuse, and it's like, well, what are you doing? Are you doing anything to, to grow in the Lord? Are you doing anything to prepare yourself? It's like, you know, you just kind of use that as a, as a get-out-of-jail-free, you know, oh, hey, we need help with children's ministry. Well, I really don't know a whole lot about the Bible. Well, read it. Study it. Get plugged in. Be a helper. Come alongside someone else. We've got a lot of great people here that would love to come alongside you and help you out and train you up, prepare you. And so don't use those excuses anymore, okay? And, and that prevent us from listening and following the Lord. The latter part of verse 19 says, But wisdom is justified by her children. And the idea presented here is that we need to look at the fruit. Look at the offspring, the children. Look at what is produced. Okay? What did John the Baptist's wisdom produce? What did his life produce? He was a man of great discipline. An ascetic who abstained from wine and from the everyday comforts of life. And he lived in the wilderness He loved the Lord. He wasn't ashamed of the message that he proclaimed. What did the wisdom of Jesus produce? Jesus lived a simple life as well. He loved all mankind. He taught the scriptures as one with authority. He preached a message of repentance. And he healed countless people from sicknesses and diseases and demon possession. What did the wisdom of this generation produce? The wise... In this generation, they were believed to be the the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes. What did their wisdom produce? Jesus spoke about what their wisdom produced in Matthew chapter 23 regarding the Pharisees and scribes. This is what he says. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. The wisdom of the generation produced burdens for others that they wouldn't bother to carry at all themselves. And so wisdom then is justified by her children. Which is better? The wisdom of John the Baptist and Jesus or the wisdom of the generation? And I think it's plain to see that the works, the fruit, the children produced by John the Baptist and Jesus were far more desirable than the works of the current generation. And so he says, hey, you guys, you guys say no to John, and you say Jesus, but wisdom is justified by her children. Just look at the fruit. Look at the lives. That, and, and what's the outcome of this type of philosophy and this wisdom? Verses 21 through 20, or 20 through 24 says this, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Here we see in verses 21 and 22, after speaking about the generation as a whole, he turned his attention towards certain cities, and he rebuked them for their lack of repentance. In 21 and 22, Jesus mentions four different cities. He he pronounced woe upon the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then he compared them to the two cities of Tyre and Sidon. The city of Chorazin isn't mentioned in connection with any 
of, of uh, the teachings or preaching or healings of Jesus. Nowhere in the New Testament, as you read through the Gospel accounts, will you hear of Jesus doing any type of work or ministry in Chorazin. Okay? In fact, the only other time that this word is even used is when Luke writes of this same account regarding the woe that was pronounced upon him. And so we don't have any examples from Scripture as to the extent of ministry that was performed there outside of what it says here, that mighty works were done there. Okay? But I want to tell you this. Just because we don't have scriptural examples doesn't mean that Jesus didn't minister there. Okay? John's Gospel tells us that Jesus did many other things. It tells us which if they were written one by one, that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In John chapter 21, 25. And so he says, just because we don't have a written account, it doesn't mean that stuff didn't happen. John says, if we would have written everything, all the books in the world wouldn't have been able to contain all that would be written about what Jesus did. So even though we don't have this, we do know that he did many works there. The city of Bethsaida, interestingly, it means house of fish. Bethsaida. And it was apparently a small fishing village prior to being elevated to the status of a city, uh, which was done by... uh, the Tetrarch Philip. Bethsaida was actually the birthplace of three of Jesus' disciples. Peter, Andrew, and Philip were all born in Bethsaida. Okay? What do we know about Bethsaida uh, outside of that? We do know that some of the miracles performed there include the feeding of the 5,000 happened in Bethsaida and a healing of a blind man happened in Bethsaida. These two cities were predominantly Jewish cities. They had synagogues that Jesus would most likely frequent and teach at as well. And and Jesus compared compared these cities to two other cities, Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile cities. Tyre was an ancient seaport city of the Phoenicians situated north of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And in the New Testament times, uh, the Romans rebuilt it and established it as a Roman colony. Uh, Yes, Uh, And then Sidon too, it was also an ancient seaport city of the Phoenicians situated even further north than Tyre. Uh, In the New Testament, the city was under Roman rule, but was given the privilege to self-govern itself as its own place, Sidon did. And there's actually an account of Jesus visiting the coast of Tyre and Sidon where he healed the daughter of a Syro-Phoenician woman. Uh, In this account, Jesus said that it was, uh, he was, this woman was coming, son of David, trying to kind of come on her, these kind of fake terms. She wasn't Jewish, but she's referring to him as the son of David. And so Jesus kind of has some harsh words to her. If you guys recall, he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, uh, to which she replied, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. In Mark chapter 7. Verses 27 and 28. And with that, Jesus then sent her on her way and healed the woman's demon-possessed daughter. And so we know that he did do some healings in that area. Okay. Jesus said that if the mighty works that were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that they would have repented long ago. And here we see the principle of responsibility. Okay. Chorazin and Bethsaida were given more responsibility because of the many works that Jesus performed with them, within them. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaks of an interesting parable regarding servants and in regards to this 
this principle of accountability and responsibility to what we know. In chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, it says this, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Verse 48, But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. On that day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin and Bethsaida because they were given so much more opportunity to respond to Christ and didn't. They will be held accountable to what they know, to what they saw, and to what they heard. Jesus shared similar words regarding the city of Capernaum in verses 23 and 24. It says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have, been, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Capernaum was the most important city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was the center of much of Jesus' earthly ministry. You guys may recall that they, they kind of packed up and set up in Capernaum as kind of like headquarters central. Okay? This is where Jesus did a lot of coming and going and teaching and preaching and healing. He performed a number of healings there. And because of all that was done there, Capernaum will be held to a higher degree of responsibility. Jesus said, if the, the works, if the works that were done in Capernaum would have been done in Sodom, that it would have remained until this day, referencing, of course, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah all the way back in the book of Genesis in Abraham's day uh, when that city was destroyed by the Lord. Jesus said it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for the city of Capernaum. Again, because of all the opportunity that was presented to them, and yet they did not repent. They did not respond to the gospel message. You know, this idea of being held accountable for what you know and, and the opportunities that are before you I think it ought to make us cringe a bit for the Western world. And specifically for the nation that most of us you know, call home, the United States. Resources without end are available to those in the United States. Bibles and Bible commentaries at the touch of a finger. I know some of you guys are doing that this morning, right? You can, you know, however many translations you want. You got the New King James, the King James, the NSAV, the NIV, the ESV. You can just, you can listen to all sorts of commentaries you want. We got podcasts, we got vodcasts, we got churches with thousands of people of them in the United States. Okay, and the United States has been a land tremendously blessed by the Lord, and much has been given to them. And I believe much will be required as well. I find it very interesting that as you study eschatology, that's kind of a big word maybe, eschatology, it's the study of end times. As you study and look at eschatology, that the most powerful nation in the world today doesn't seem to play a part at all 
in the events of the end times. Why is that? Well, I don't know why. I don't know why, but I do find it interesting. I do find it interesting that most people would agree that the United States is, is the, the biggest world player out there today, and yet when it comes to the end times of the world, we don't see them being a major player at all. We don't really see them at all. And, and so it makes us wonder, well, what, what happened to the United States? I don't know. But I do know this. We will all be held accountable for what we know and what we did with God's Son, Jesus Christ. To, much, to whom much is given, much will be required, and we have been given much. And I think it ought to encourage us and urge us to seize every opportunity that's before us. Okay? God has given us a tremendous amount of opportunities for growth, okay? for personal growth, for the growth of the kingdom be uh, players in that interaction, that we might be people serving the Lord. And we need to take advantage of the many opportunities that we have before us. I think we, I, I hate to say this, I include myself in this, I think we're just lazy sometimes. We've got all the resources we could ever want. You know, I think we, I, I've gone to missions conferences and, and talked and heard from people that, you know, they have, they have to like handwrite little Bibles and, and they have little or nothing, yet their fire and hunger for the Lord is, is incredible. And yet we have an abundance, and yet that appetite isn't there. And so I want to encourage you guys, okay? Seize every opportunity that the Lord gives to us. Make good on all these opportunities. The many blessings that have been afforded to you, make good on them. Verse 25, it says this. And that time, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. As Jesus considered the generation that had rejected Him and the cities that had rejected Him, He paused and He gave thanks to the Lord for those that had received Him. He gave thanks to the Father for revealing the things regarding Him to babes. And gave Jesus joy. And it gave Jesus reason to give thanks. That the things regarding him were being revealed to babes. That word babes is used metaphorically, obviously, to picture those that were unlearned, unenlightened, the, the simple, the, the innocent. Okay. Jesus looked around as he was pronouncing woe upon all these people, and he looked and saw those that were receiving him, and he looked around and he, and he saw what the Father was doing, how he was bringing not the high and mighty, okay? not those who thought they had it all figured out, oh, I'm super educated and I know it all. He wasn't reaching to those people, okay? but to those who were simple, innocent, those that were very well aware of their lack and their own need. And it brought to him reason to rejoice and to give thanks. Uh, to the wise and prudent, things were hidden from them, it tells us there. Hidden. Okay? And, and why, you may ask, were these things hidden from them? I, I asked that as I thought, why, why would you hide these things, Lord? And I think the answer is very simple. It's because they didn't come to Christ. They rejected him. 
Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 14, it speaks about the, the Jewish nation. Okay? And it speaks about how things are hidden from them. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. The veil is taken away in Christ. You you see, until they come to Christ, these things, these truths, they're going to be hidden from them. Verse 16, just two verses later there, it says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So these things remain hidden from them. Because they would not turn to the Lord. Because they would not come to Christ. And so these things, they were hidden from them. Verse 27 says something interesting. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That word know, it means to, to know fully. To, to gain or receive full knowledge of something, to become fully acquainted with something. It's not just something you know, kind of like I know about something. Like I can, I can know about a professional athlete and say, oh, I know about you know, Michael Jordan and he played for... But I don't know Michael Jordan. We're not friends. You know, I, I don't know him. He doesn't know me. But I can know about him. Okay? It's not talking about that kind of know. It's this fully acquainted with type of know. Nobody's fully acquainted with or fully knows the Son except the Father. And likewise, nobody knows the Father in this manner except the Son and, it tells us, those to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And this is interesting. The only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. No other means that one could become intimately uh, involved in knowing the Father unless they come to Jesus Christ. Jesus rightly said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. You, know, you can't know the Father unless you first know the Son, Jesus Christ. And you can't know Jesus unless you come to Him. And He wills to reveal that to you. You know, here we see in these verses very clearly, I believe, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God at work alongside the doctrine of the responsibility of man. Those doctrines, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, to to some in the church, they see these things as mutually exclusive from one another. That, That both cannot be true. That either God is sovereign or or man's responsible. Okay, but but you can't have both. But to me, it's easy to see that both are taught throughout the Scriptures. And and here in these two verses, we see elements of both. We we see the sovereignty of God working in revealing truths of Jesus to babes. And Jesus revealing the Father to those who would come to Him. And so we see the sovereignty of God, that He's doing it. It's all Him. He's revealing. He's doing that work. 
But then we also see the responsibility of man working right alongside that and those babes who are deciding to come to Christ. And they have to have Jesus reveal the Father to them. And so many ask the question, how can both be true? How can we recognize, how do we make these things work? How do we, how do we make them intersect and understand it in our own minds that these truths that we, they seem to be so exclusive from one another, how do we harmonize them? How do we get them to, to work out? I like what John MacArthur had to say about what he called twin truths. I found a, a, a study that he did in February at his church, and I really liked it. I want to read what he said to you. As he was preaching and teaching, he said this, The fact that you don't understand how they go together only proves that you're less than you should be. It doesn't say anything about God. Okay? Your inability to harmonize those things is a reflection of your fallenness, my fallenness. They can't be harmonized in the human mind. But realize this. Hopefully you're not offended. He says, realize this. You are a puny mind, and so am I, and so am I. And collectively, we are puny compared to the infinite, vast, limitless mind of God. All I can tell you is that in the Word of God, these truths run parallel. And the answer is to believe them both with all your heart. How do we recognize the, how do we you know reconcile these two differences? We don't. We believe them both. We believe somehow, some way, hard for us to understand and comprehend it, we believe that God is sovereign, that it's Him and only Him that does the work. There's nothing good in us. We believe that. The Bible teaches that. But we also believe that God has given us a responsibility that we need to believe, that we need to come to Him in faith. And so we say, how do we make that work? We don't. We just believe them both because the Bible teaches them both. And I like what John MacArthur had to say there. Here's what it comes down to, guys. This is what I think. God wants to do a work in your life, but He won't force Himself or His plan upon you. I believe that God wants to do a work in your life, but He's not going to force that work upon you. He's not going to bring you dragging and kicking and screaming, saying, you've got to follow me. This is the only way. No, God wants to do a work. But we have been given a responsibility to respond to Him in faith. And we must be willing to come to Him in faith and trust Him. And only after we come to Him in faith will He do the work that He wants to do in our lives. He's not going to grab us kicking and screaming. Okay, He's going to wait for us to come and then He'll do that work in our lives. It's not the work that we do. We don't do that work. He does it. But we've got to come to Him. We've got to respond to Him in faith in order to th- that to happen. Verse 28 through 30, we'll finish up the chapter here. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here Jesus gives an open invitation to come to Him. And I'd like to just take a look at this invitation and make some observations that we can glean from here. To start, Jesus says, come to me. Not me, but Jesus. Come to me, he says. The the answers that we're looking for, the the help that we need is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't say, 
go to a shrink or go to self-help or go to your mom and dad or go to your best friend. Not that those things are bad, but he didn't say that. Okay? Those, those things aren't bad, but they just shouldn't be our first thought. Okay? We need to come to Jesus first. Okay? We shouldn't rely upon man to help us when we haven't gone to the Lord first. You know, I remember when I was new in my walk with the Lord, I had a friend that was discipling me, and I would always come to him to get his opinion on, on subject matters and different Bible verses. And, you know, I'd come to him, what does this mean? What about this? Oh, I just, I heard this teaching the other day. What does this mean? And I was always coming to him with all these questions. And, and uh, it was good at first. Okay? Uh, he would give me the answers. He'd kind of show me around. But he was able to point me in the right direction. But after a while, he started asking me, well, what's the Lord saying to you? What, what does the Word say? You know, at first I didn't like it. I was like, I don't know. Just tell me the answer. I just want, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but I realized now, and, and back then I realized afterwards, what he was doing. He was making me dependent upon the Lord and not dependent upon himself. You, saw, you know, I think we have people in our lives that we, we can go to when we're going through tough times, and that's great. But they should never take the place of the Lord. Okay? Well, I want to encourage you to have people like that in your life, but go to the Lord first. We don't want to depend upon man. Okay? No matter how great of a friend they are, they will one day let you down. But Christ will not. And so Jesus says, come to me. Okay? Don't go those other places. Come to me first and foremost. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Interesting that Jesus invites all who labor and are heavy laden. That word labor means to be worn out, weary, or faint. Does that describe anyone here? Okay. Worn out, weary, faint. You're just kind of like, whew. I think, you know, especially after the holiday season, I, I know that I'm just tired. I'm tired. I don't know if you guys are. You guys are all superhuman, I'm sure. But I, I'm tired, okay? Uh, to be heavy laden, it means to be overloaded. You just got, you're just overloaded with so much going on. Does that describe anyone here today? You just feel overloaded, Okay? It really is incredible to see who Jesus invited to come to him. You know, I, I think to myself, who would you invite to yourself? Okay. Do you want a bunch of worn out, wearied, overloaded people knocking on your door? Hey, brother. And it's like, you know, I don't know if I would, that's not maybe who I would, I selfishly think, I don't think I'd invite those people. <laughs> I have to admit. Yeah. I want to Happy people that seem to have it all together. and Yeah, come hang out with me. Those are the people I want to hang out with. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who, are, are, who labor and are heavy laden. Okay? Jesus, his heart goes out to those who have been laboring and those who are heavy laden. You know, and I believe there's a twofold application here. Okay? One, on one side, you have those that are just heavy laden with their sin. Okay. Psalm 38, verse 4 declares, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. And Jesus invites to, him, invites to himself all those that are heavy laden with sin. But I believe he's also striking a chord with all those who have been under the weight and burden of the law. Remember what the Pharisees and scribes were forcing people to do? Okay. They were b- binding heavy burdens, hard to bear, laying them on pe- men's shoulders. Jesus is not only calling those with the weight of sin upon them, 
but also the weight of the things of this world. Those things that we spoke of already, that, that, that things that aren't necessarily sin, but they're just weights that are keeping us down. Jesus declares to come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. That word rest means to cause or permit one to cease from any movement or labor in order to recover and collect his strength. Jesus invited all those who had labored in sin and were heavy laden with the weights of this world to come to him and that he would give to them rest, an opportunity to recover and collect our strength. He then adds, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus said, once you've come to me, and you've found rest, and you've recovered, and you've collected your strength, why don't you try taking my yoke upon you? He didn't say, come to me and, and collect your strength, and, and be, recover, and then, and then sit on your butt for the rest of your life. He said, now take my yoke upon you. A yoke was a tool used in plowing fields. It was usually used to partner together two animals, usually ox. Oxen? Oxen, right? Oxen, plural. <laughs> to plow fields or to pull a load. Okay? It's said that oftentimes a stronger, mature ox would be partnered together with a younger ox with the purpose Okay, uh, of that older mature ox leading that young ox and showing the way and how to plow the fields. And it would be an opportunity for training and discipling uh, in this young ox. Okay? And I, I, the imagery, I believe, presented by taking Christ's yoke upon us is that He is the lead ox. Okay? We're the young ox. And, and we yoke with Him and we learn from Him. We allow Him to lead and we follow everywhere He goes and we learn from Him as we go. That's the picture there. He's the lead ox. He's, I'll take the lead ox. You come here, you come alongside me and I'm going to take you and you just follow right alongside me. For Jesus continued, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That word gentle in your Bible may have like an asterisk or a footmark next to it, a, a subscript. Uh, and and if you were to look it up, if you followed it down, you'd see that, that that word means meek. What is meekness? Some think of it as weakness. It's like, oh, you're meek, you're weak, and you're frail. But that's not what meekness means. Okay, I like this little saying. It says, meekness is not weakness, but strength under control. Meekness is not weakness, but strength under control. Jesus, although he had the power of Almighty God, he controlled that power. And lived a lowly, humble life. And I believe that is what we learn from Him as we are yoked with Him. To live in control of ourselves. Okay? To walk humbly before others. He continues, he said, And you will find rest for your souls. I, I believe that many a person can find rest for their physical bodies. We can go to a spa. We can go get a massage and take some time off of work. We, we can experience rest for our bodies, but only Christ can offer true rest for our souls. Lastly, Jesus proclaims, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 John 5 3 tells us that his commandments, they are not burdensome. Okay? And, and may I suggest that if you feel that following the Lord is a burden, 
or, or that following the Lord is, is too difficult, that, that maybe you've gotten away from that yoke in Christ. For Christ says that His yoke is easy and, and His burden is light. Okay? And, and I found that in my life, when things get tough and when I feel overwhelmed and overloaded, it's often because I haven't spent any time with the Lord. I haven't stayed close by His side and, allowed and followed Him as He's led and guided me through the path. And the answer, if you feel like it's just too difficult or, or the burden is too heavy, is to come back to Jesus. The answer is to receive this open invitation that he offers and to come to him and take his yoke upon you and to learn from him and there you will find rest. Today, this morning, we're going to... We have the privilege of coming to the Lord in communion. We do it once a month, usually the beginning of the month, in the first Sunday of the month. It's the first Sunday of the year. And, and so we get to take communion uh, this morning. And, and today we can respond to this invitation that's presented to us. Okay. Perhaps, you know, after hearing this message, you realize that in some ways you've been making some excuses in life. Okay. And, and you're not surrendering fully to the Lord. Today, as we partake of communion, you need to confess that to the Lord. And take that time during communion to ask the Lord, what are you asking of me, God? What, what do you want of me? And listen for his reply. Stop making excuses and, and come to him. Or maybe today you realize the great opportunities that abound unto us for growth and the furtherance of the gospel. And you've realized perhaps you've been a little bit lazy in your relationship with the Lord. And during communion, I want to encourage you to confess that to Him. He knows it, but confess it to Him. Ask Him to help you grow deeper in your walk with the Lord. And possibly you're here this morning and you're just worn out. You're overloaded. Maybe it's not sin in your life, but it's just weights. Communion is a great time to come to the Lord and find refreshment for the soul as we remember what Christ did for us, how His body was broken for us. And His blood was poured out for us. Communion is is more than just eating a cracker and drinking some juice. Yes, those things are are symbolic of His body that was broken for you and me and and His blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. But, But more than that, communion, just like the Word indicates, it's a time to commune with the Lord. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we partake of communion to commune with the Lord, to seek His face, to thank Him for what He's doing in our lives, to ask Him what He has for us. It's a time to reflect upon our relationship with the Lord, to make things right. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning.